Welcome to Professionally Challenged, war stories from leaders driving change in law firms. Your hosts are Rob Patterson of Parkins Lane Consulting Group and Paul Evans of Toro Digital. Today's guest is Jodie Baker. Jodie started her career as a corporate lawyer at Mint Allison. From there, she moved into an in-house role at JB Weir before moving into a role as a financial analyst. After six and a half years at JB Weir, she joined a financial services startup based in Kansas. Upon returning back to Australia, she founded Hive Legal, a law firm with a unique business model and approach to practicing, and served as the managing partner. About three and a half years ago, she founded Zakia, a software as a service tool that helps in-house counsel managers automate their workflow. On top of being the CEO of Zakia, Jody is the chair of the Australian Legal Technology Association, commonly known as ALTA, and is the advisory board co-chair of the College of Law Australia's Centre for Legal Innovation. Welcome to the show, Jody. Thank you, Paul. It's lovely to be here. So my first question is really based on a conversation we had a few weeks ago, um, just before an ALTA pricing event in Melbourne, and we were discussing that there's no silver bullets in business. So my first question is simple. How do you possibly fit it all in? Well, it's uh, it's tough, right? I mean, you're in a similar situation, Paul. We're all trying to juggle family and uh, a life outside of what is a startup and running your own business, and it mm-hmm. it is um, super tricky and challenging. Probably the most time-consuming um, part of my job is looking for the silver bullet, uh, forever in search <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> forever in search of that that one thing that's just going to make everything else so much easier. But I think that um, for me, uh, I have always lived by the mantra work hard, be nice. And uh, for me, fitting it all in actually relies heavily on both of those two things. So I work, I I figure that I can outwork anyone. It's just a case of knuckling down and and getting as much done as I possibly can in any given hour uh, and making sure that I put in as many hours as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, the be nice part is is really the silver the silver bullet that I have been able to find, and that is by surrounding myself with amazing people, doing things, and giving back to the community, um, to my team members, my network, referrers, clients, as much as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, karma, for want of a better word, yep. uh, actually means that um, those things come back to you threefold, and that's been very, very uh, beneficial in the long run. Sometimes the short term feels super hard to find uh, the time to fit it all in. But when you uh, when you give back, then you find that, especially here in Australia, we've got a very, very supportive community and ecosystem. Uh, it generally, it generally mm. comes back to support you the other way too when you need it. Makes a lot of sense. All right. Today, um, we'd love to talk to you about two topics. Um the first, um, your journey as a startup founder and the lessons that you've learned along the way. And then the second, really about your role as the chair of Alta, so the current state of legal tech in Australia. Um, and I was thinking about this, and I guess there's no reason we couldn't talk about technology, legal tech really in a worldwide sort of sense. I think you know a lot of software isn't really tied to geographic boundaries, so we can talk about it a bit more broadly and what you see foresee, sorry, for Alton in the future. Um, Rob, do you want to jump in with some of the icebreakers, perhaps? Hey, Jay, really nice to meet you. Great to meet you too, Rob. Cool. So what was your first ever job? 
Right. Well, my first ever job was as a young 12-year-old charting mm-hmm. stocks on the stock market with my father for $2 an hour. And wow. we used to, well before, well before software did this in an automated sense, or at least that we could afford, uh, we used to sit with the newspapers and my dad would read out the open, the high, the low, the close and the volume of each stock that he wanted to track. And I would draw them on a chart by hand. And, uh, and then he would take those charts and he would analyse them to try and pick trends for investing. And uh, it was my first introduction to the financial markets, but it became a very useful background for my future life at uh, what became Goldman Sachs Australia. So, David Weir was acquired by Goldman Sachs and it, it became um, a very useful uh, background for, for that career. How sensational. Did he give you a cut of the gains as well? Well, uh, I did have that discussion with him, but he said he would only share the gains if I was prepared to share the losses too. And as a, <laughs> as a young 12-year-old, I didn't that So I just took my $2 an hour and I thought that that was pretty good profit at the time. It's magnificent. Magnificent. Um, and just another quick one. What was your first car? I had a Ford Escort, bright green, um, oh, cool. and its number plate was ARS. So for all your Australian <laughs> listeners, <laughs> you would appreciate that my uh, my boyfriend, now husband, used to call it the little green ass. <laughs> <laughs> Magnificent. That's tremendous. Over to you, Paul. All right. So we're going to talk a bit about Zakia now. Um, as mentioned earlier, you were previously a managing partner of a law firm, albeit a non-traditional one. You made the leap to founding a tech company that serves in-house teams, which is obviously a very big career change. Um, what inspired you to go down the route of software and why Zakia? Why the Zakia business, I guess, specifically? I guess the best answer to this lies in something that sits in my DNA um, from when I was a 12-year-old. Uh, I love ideas. I love innovation. I love coming up with um, new things and new concepts and uh, in some t- sometimes my brain feels a little crushed by how many ideas are in there. But when you've got that many ideas, one thing that um, you realise very quickly is that there's no place that can bring ideas to fruition as quickly as software. And mm. I've always loved watching new things. I've always played with the new toys that were available with apps and yep. um, <laughs> anything that I could get my hands on. Uh, and when we when we launched Hive, one of the things that we wanted to do was was iterate, was to keep playing. Uh, we used some platforms that were out there to to try different things, and uh, we ran a research project in 2015 with as many in-house counsel as we could uh, agree to help us, and uh, sat down with them and asked them um, very candidly what was missing from their suite of products. And uh, through that process, we you know there were three things that came up consistently, um, and they formed the basis of a prototype that we put together for three clients uh, and they used the software, the prototype, um, just to, to test the idea really. Uh, we had a, a fantastic uh, level of take-up and they were really excited by it, but we were, of course, constrained by the, the platforms that we built them on. So um, okay. we decided that we were going to build it ourselves and uh, and the feedback from them was also fairly candid around um, it didn't belong inside a law firm. It needed to, to be outside of that for them to be really comfortable about using it more mm-hmm. extensively. And so the moment came where we just had to choose, you know, where it was going to be and where it was going to grow. And so we, we spun it out of Hive and, and created its own um, entity. And uh, and now it's it, it doesn't have any relationship to Hive these days, but it's yeah. uh, it's sort of an iterative journey, I guess. But for me, um, it's, a, it, it's a really good fit because I love the whole concept of, 
hey, guys, I've got another idea, and they all roll their eyes. <laughs> oh, it does, actually. Sounds like my team. Yeah. I've got, <laughs> hey, I've got another idea, and my CFO uh, just rolls their eyes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is very good fun. Yeah. Uh, cool. So I guess this sort of um, ties into my, my next question, but I, I studied marketing at uni, but I also started studied coding. Um, and... I guess I can chat to developers relatively comfortably. I, I'm not a developer myself, but I did learn code a bit. But you come from a background of law, so I find this really, really interesting, is then to go into a software company. So how did you find that, making that transition from a background in law and obviously business um, and finance to managing a team of technical staff, so devs, engineers, a CTO, mm. et cetera? It is interesting, isn't it? So I guess the first thing is that when you look across the Elta group, there are a lot of ex-lawyers who are founders of legal technology companies. I think that there's a a reasonable um, parallel between the logical thinking of Mm -hmm. lawyers, if this, then that. Uh, That logical thinking allows for a very similar way of approaching problems. So if we take this piece of data and we do this with it, then that will be the outcome. And so I think that there is a, a nice flow uh, in terms of the way the brain works for lawyers as there is for, for coders. Mm-hmm. Um, for me personally, I dabbled with coding when I was a kid. Okay. I, I think yep. I built a clock mm-hmm. and a, a ping pong and a few other bits and pieces yep. on my old Commodore 64 initially. Love it. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty old. So, <laughs> um, so I, I did have a little bit of, uh, you know, I know nothing about coding these days, but I, I do have a bit of a sense of, of how it all hangs together. Mm-hmm. But it was it was a journey for sure. So I was very lucky in that I was supported by um, Hive Legal's uh, IT suppliers were Tickbox, uh, and um, the guy who runs that, Luke McCarthy, was very very generous in helping me to talk about how um, you drum up a set of specifications, uh, yeah. and this is how specifications look. And we outsourced um, our initial, uh, not the, the prototype, but the MVP, we outsourced mm-hmm. that to a group. Um, so, you know, we spent a lot of time putting together specifications and wireframes and all of those sorts of things. So, you know, I look back now and I think that they're hilarious. We've kept them for posterity, but it's, yeah. uh, it's <laughs> nothing that you would want to model yourself off. Um, but then actually <clears throat> the big leap for me was when we brought our CTO on board, um, and he was originally from Tickbox, uh, but he um, really took me on the journey and said, you know, this is the information that we need. This is how we need it structured. And so while he's been building up the team and they're learning about legal and the legal industry and our yep. clients, I'm learning about the tech and what they mm-hmm. need and how we, you know, interact with each other. And uh, and that's been a journey. But, you know, I think that it hasn't actually been as challenging as I expected it to be. The guys yep. are, um, are very... I should I say the guys because the technical team has been all guys up until just very recently. Mm-hmm. We've been very excited to add Anita to our team so that we've got a uh, a woman on the team now as well. Um, but uh, you know they've been very patient with me and helping me to learn um, and uh, you know do everything that I need to do so that the communication is smooth. But it's a steep learning curve for sure. Has there been a couple of sort of seismic shifts in I suppose in in corporate world? And in technology that have sort of that have aided the development of Zarkia. So I'm, I'm just wondering. It seems that um, certainly large companies are looking to, have, to keep more work in house, and also, you know, the technology is now enabling, um, I suppose, better process flow and um, 
greater efficiency? Is that sort of what's driving or or driving the take up of Zakia? There has been. There are probably two big things I think that are driving um, Zakia and and its growth, mm-hmm. and both of them really precede Zakia's existence. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you like, Zakia was the result of the two things that I'm going to talk about. The first is cloud computing. As boring as it sounds, it actually allows for um, much smaller teams to be able to access much more sophisticated pieces yeah. of software. So the traditional pieces of software, particularly for in-house teams, are um, big pieces that require big implementations, mm-hmm. um, you know, on-premise uh, integration and, and adoption and what have you, and so very, very expensive. So really only available to the very, very large teams, mm-hmm. whereas cloud computing means that you can have sophisticated pieces of software and if you're a team of one, you can access that software mm-hmm. uh, because you're only paying a, a fractional um, yeah. proportion of, of what it is that you're using. And that's just a, a piece that opens up the market incredibly to anyone. So it's a really boring thing to talk about. Um, and when people say, what do you think is the, the biggest shift in the next five years? Everyone talks about AI and I talk yeah. about cloud computing. So I've got this really boring answer that is actually, I just think that that means that more and more tools can be built by, by groups like yeah. Zakia yeah. Uh, because it's inexpensive for us to build them, but it's also making it accessible to everybody. Uh, yeah. Whereas before it was, it was so exclusive. The second thing is the do more with less. So when we had the financial crisis in 2008, mm-hmm. uh, there was this big shift to bring work in-house uh, and that continued for you know a decade, really, close to a decade. What we're seeing now is that um, that's a one-off gain, obviously, financial mm-hmm. gain. And so once that has been had, uh, the question then is what do you do to keep getting more efficient? And uh, the pressure is on, and I think that we all know that we're on the precipice of, of a slowdown and mm-hmm. the pressure is on to keep costs as contained as possible. But uh, what do you do? How do you do that? And that's why legal technology is exploding because there are many, many things that can be done. Um, but for us, one of the things that our clients are looking to do is run themselves like a mini law firm. They want to um, be a little bit more professional in the way that they do things. They don't want to run things off spreadsheets mm-hmm. anymore. They want to be able to do more professional reporting so that they can articulate what they do, how they do it, who they're doing it for, where the efficiency gains might be. Um, so data plays a really key, critical part of that. But some of it is just in workflow. It's just who is working on what and for whom. I have a team of 10 and I need to be able to operate that as a little mini law firm um, so that I can, you know, act as I should uh, given that I'm trying to to contain my costs. So those two big trends um, really preceded, most of them, most of of the impact of that preceded uh, Zakia's birth, um, but it has been very impactful in terms of its adoption. Cool. Okay, so... You have founded a successful business before with Hive Legal. So um, I'm sure that there's lots of things that you learned from that venture. Uh, I'm still on my first business, so I feel like I'm learning something about business every single day. <laughs> but second time around for you now. So what's the biggest surprise or thing that you've learned this time around? <laughs> well, actually, this might be a reassuring answer for you, Paul. Okay. <laughs> it's, tough. it's tough no matter when you do. I mean, I think that first time was a professional services company, so <laughs> it's vastly different to a software company. So some of the learnings were not able to be repeated. Mm. But I think that actually um, maybe the hardest lesson was that it's tough even the second time around, that okay. it, it really does come back to that, you know, work hard, be nice piece that, 
you just have to work hard. It's one foot in front of the other. There are no silver bullets. You really just have to, to um, keep going. Probably one of the easier things is that you um, is that you are prepared for how tough it is. So if you know that it's not going to be easy for that first year, that the second year gets a little bit easier and so on. But it does take it does take a really long time to not be doing things for the first time and that's the hardest yeah, part yeah. is that, you know, if you have to build a policy, you have to build it for the first time. You're not just revising it or or renewing it or what have you. If you're buying insurance for the first time, if you're setting up GST, if you're, you know, like whatever yeah, it is, yeah. so many things. Um, so it can be really tough. The biggest surprise with Zakia, other than kind of the, the obvious things about building a software company as opposed to a professional services company, has been the potential so our global footprint is really starting to grow, but that's exciting, obviously, but also incredibly overwhelming. Um, yep. So where you realise, okay, this software has application all over the world, what does that actually mean? You know, that's a that's yeah, a yeah. really big thing, and probably one of the toughest elements of that is no sleep. So. You know, you get up at, I've been getting up at five o'clock in the morning ever since we launched our US operation nearly two years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's, you know, that wears thin, but it wears even thinner when you start to take off in Europe and you realise that you've got to try and burn the candle at both ends of the day. And that's really, really hard. Um, so, you know, that managing that, making sure you've got the right team in place and that you have the right people that you can lean on, that's, that's an important element of that. But it'd be to say that the biggest lesson that I'm still learning is how to let go of certain things, how to just say, I can't be everywhere, I can't be awake 24 hours a day. So some things just have to, to be prioritised and actually I just have to let some things go. It's just not going to be done. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a really interesting answer and I think that just unpacking a few of the things you just raised, Jodie, um, you know, I talk about a silver bullet and you know, and about it being hard work. I think even a lot of law firms think, oh, we'll just develop an app and that'll, you know, we'll make a fortune and the world will be a wonderful place. It's not that easy, is it? It's really not. I wish it was. <laughs> <laughs> we all do. We, we all do. <laughs> we, all, um, we all talk about the fact that ideas are quite cheap. I mean, 1% mm-hmm. inspiration, 99% perspiration is yeah. absolutely true. And uh, if only it was the other way around, <laughs> <laughs> then, uh, you know, we'd be moving forward a, a lot a lot faster on all sorts of things. But um, there's no silver bullet. And I, mm-hmm. I think that that's probably a good thing. It means that we have to slow down sometimes and it means that we iterate a little bit more carefully. And yeah. um, there's been some interesting lessons and some interesting commentary in the last week about WeWork and and the fact oh, that yes. it's um, uh, that it's pulled its IPO for the mm-hmm. moment. Uh, there was a really interesting article that I read uh, last week that talked about the fact that um, having constrained finances is really healthy for new businesses because mm-hmm. it helps you focus on the most important things. Yes. And uh, if we had a silver bullet, i.e. all the money in the world to, to spend on whatever we want, then that's not necessarily um, going to mean that we make the right decisions. So, being a little bit slower about it can sometimes slow down to get there faster, I think is the expression that people um, have yeah. sometimes thrown around on that front. But I think that there is pros and cons to having the silver bullet. Yeah, great. Yeah. In terms of your global expansion, um, what I'm, I'm interested to know whether, you know, like you, people think global and it's, you know, totally scalable, it's IT, but are there any constraints around confidentiality? Like do you have to host the software in, in each country and things like that? 
There absolutely is. So, I mean, GDPR plays a very big um, role in the way that we build these sorts of software. Uh, for me, so for Zakia, we have um, we have servers in the US, Australia, and the UK, yeah. um, and and soon to be a European um, or continental European uh, location as well. Um, so those that that has been a requisite for complying with all of the different privacy uh, uh, um, zones. And one of the things that um, we're mindful of is that it's not just regulatory. Some of it's just perception. The US uh, clients want their data hosted in the US, and that's not even necessarily a regulatory requirement for the clients that want that. But we also have clients who are uh, based in Australia, government clients, et cetera, who and health organisations who must have their data hosted in yeah. Australia. Um, so that is definitely uh, a consideration. And then there are other things that are not even software related, but actually just business requirements and policies of particular organisations um, that aren't necessarily about the server location, but it's related to the architecture that we have in place yeah. and information security, pardon me, as we know, is is paramount for everybody. So it's uh, for us, it's a number one priority and it, it requires its own level of expertise and uh, and effort, um, and when you go global, that that multiplies by however many different regions you're uh, you're operating in. Are there any um, cultural nuances? Do you think that you've come across that you didn't sort of expect? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, there, there definitely is. One came up just recently, which I thought was fascinating. We're just in the process of um, doing our scheduling for the summer break. So here in Australia, obviously, we're coming mm-hmm. into December and January, which is, you know, traditionally where many people take a big break. But we have quite a few clients in the Middle East and yep. it's not their break. We have a lot of clients in the US and they take a week or so off for Christmas, maybe, or maybe not at all, like they take one mm. day, which is Christmas Day, they don't have Boxing Day. Yep. So how do we cover support in yes. all of these different regions <laughs> and also make sure that our team gets a break and all of those different things? So um, it's it's a really interesting challenge um, to, to try and juggle all of those different things and make sure that we're looking after uh, the team who are now global so we can, you know, we have mm. got the capacity now to shift these things around, but we didn't take any of that into consideration yeah. <laughs> when we started saying, Yes, we'll take that Hungarian client and that client in Bahrain and that client, you know, it's just been yeah. it's been quite a, a whirlwind around that. Yeah, cool. Last question about Zakia, which was um, one of the things that you've said to me in the past is that you're very fond of outsourcing um, things that aren't part of your business's core or core capabilities. And my understanding is that was your approach with Hive and now is your approach with Zakia. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. 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 So, for, for a software business, so for anyone that's listening that um, is thinking about starting a software business or is in that those early stages, what what do you see as core to a software business and what isn't? It's a really, really good question and a conversation that I have all the time with um, people who are starting software businesses is is around the outsourcing of, of the tech itself. So, can you outsource the building of the software? We did initially. Uh, we've, we've played with it twice, outsourcing. So, uh, once here in Australia, we outsourced and then the second time we outsourced to Vietnam. Um, both times were unsuccessful uh, and... You know, a level of success, but um, yep. to the extent that I would do it again, the answer is an emphatic no. Uh-huh. Um, I think that there is a false for us, and this is obviously going to be different depending on which outsource team you get um, and you know what sort of a, a model you're putting together. But for us, there's a false economy 
in trying to outsource something that is your core business. We are yes. building a software and so this is what we do. Um, so once we brought our CTO on board, which is just coming up for two years ago now, um, in fact, it may even be two years today, um, we, you know, we we made a decision that we were building our team from there and, and that was a line in the sand and that's been very, very successful for us. Um, the other thing about that, just, just in terms of keeping the software engineering core to the business, is that our team is critical to the, the direction that we're taking the product. So they feel it, they see it, they are, you know, we have our team meetings every week, everybody knows who our client opportunities are, what they're looking for, um, comments that they might have on our roadmap, on our software. They're all privy to all of that information, which means, of course, that they can say, oh, I've got an idea on that or I think I could just knock that off pretty quickly or, hey, I've been working in such and such and I've had a separate idea and because it's all integrated into the one team, you've got, you've got a capacity to really um, move that forward quite quickly and I think that, that keeping that inside has been a really important element of our, um, our business model. Mm -hmm. um, sales and customer care for us, by and large, is, is core to what we do. So, they're our customers. Sure. We look after them. Um, we don't do all sales in-house, though. We do have some partners, some resellers um, in some of the far-flung parts of the world. And, uh, and they've been, a, you know, a really interesting um, addition to our business model and, and actually a very enjoyable one, frankly. Um, Non-core for us is uh, everything else. So, accounting, marketing, Obviously, we've got the resellers, some legal, our website, uh, digital advertising, and what have you is not something that we do. So we are, you know, very we're quite um, self-contained around some of that sort of stuff. So we we take a much more gentle approach to our marketing, um, but it's uh, it is something that we can outsource if and when we've got um, when we've got the resources or the inclination or the headspace or all of the above. Yep. The silver bullet. <laughs> yep. Cool. All right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about legal tech now. So you founded Alta with a small yes. group of legal tech founders from other startups in the legal tech yes. space. Um, now has over fifty members. I think it's about what two years old. So under? we kicked off kicked off in January last year. So okay. what's that? Yeah, twenty yeah. months or so. Um, yeah. So it's actually more than seventy members now. Oh wow. Geez, yeah. I need to check the website. Um, <laughs> what was the original goal of the group? I guess it started as FOMO, actually. Um, yep. So, a bit of fear of missing out. Uh, when we looked at the fintech sector, we saw that it had a full ecosystem, really. So, um, a lot of, it was an association, obviously. It seemed to have a lot of um, support from all sorts of different places, whether it be government or um, banks mm -hmm. or whatever, but we didn't have the same thing in the legal tech space and uh, Ed was having lunch with James O'Dell, who's at Elevate, uh, and we talked about the fact that there seemed to be a few people who were coming into the market uh, and we wanted to get together with other people who were rolling up their sleeves was the description that we used and actually building stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so we just we literally just got um, you know the half a dozen people that we knew together for for drinks and that was really the the beginning of initially it was about sharing ideas and information. So how do you find a CTO? How do you um, find clients? How do you register for overseas operations? You know, like yeah. whatever it might be, there was just this dearth of how do we find others like us and, and come together in a way that means that we're not threatened by each other but that we can learn from each other. 
Um, so it was about building that ecosystem. Um, secondary to that, but but very quickly discussed amongst the group, was the importance of building a brand of Australian legal tech. So actually saying the brand of Australian legal tech on the global stage is something that we can't, none of us can build that individually. We have to build that as a group. Yep. So actually saying if we all come together and there's enough of us, at this point we're thinking, oh, there's, oh, look, there's seven people who are doing yeah. similar sorts of things, <laughs> not 70. Right. Um, but if we all do it together, that's a stronger voice than if you um, than if you try and do it individually. So that became a very clear target um, quite quickly. And that that those drinks or that sort of informal uh part of what of our journey lasted for about six to nine months and then um, we decided to put together a, a some sort of an event uh, and Macquarie Bank got behind it in a nanosecond they were just brilliant uh, but of course they couldn't sponsor it unless we were an entity and so that's when we formalized and once we formalized and put the the flag in the ground then um all of these other legal technologies that we didn't know about uh, came out of the woodwork and then, you know, some have, have been born since then. So it's been a very rapid uh, growth. That's awesome. All right. So you took on the chair role um, at the start of this year. What do you see as the future of Alta? Um, what do you think it'll look like? Yeah, we've still got some maturing to do, but I think the goals will remain broadly the same, supporting groups who are uh, building their legal technology businesses, not just the tech itself, but Mm. the business that sits around it. So helping them to build and then grow and then most importantly, scale. Uh, We all know that it's it's hard. It's really tough. We've talked about that today, Mm -hmm. Um, but actually giving them as much support and as much help as possible so that they survive and thrive. Uh, So that's a really, really important element of just making sure that they've got um, everything that they need to be making good decisions around how they move forward. Um, so that's a that's the, the first and, and most important to me. Um, the second is to inform the market, so making sure that it's easy for those who are interested in legal tech to find what they need and to realise just how strong the Australian options are here right in their own backyard uh, because often um, – Companies want somebody, want the support here, want the the on the ground access to development teams or uh, roadmaps or what have you, but uh, assume that it's actually not available here in the Australian market. So we want to make sure that that's loud and yeah, clear. Right. Um, and then, of course, there's the building the brand, uh, Australian Legal Tech Offshore, and we know that we've done a good job on that. We get we get quite a lot of um, quite a lot of reinforcement from uh, the US and the UK particularly about the strength of the Australian legal technology brand in the, the overseas market. So uh, I think that we're going in the right direction. But um, the vision is definitely to make sure that any of the Australian legal technologies that exist today are continuing to, to thrive and scale as they want to and do so sensibly and um, onward and upward. Yeah, cool. What do, you, what do you think Australia's place in the global legal tech market is? Do you think it's, um, you, you said like, that it's well respected by the US and the UK, but is it um, growing faster than other places or is it, do you find that the market's really kind of growing together? There's there's obviously ILTA, there's ELTA, I think I've said that right, the European one. <laughs> um, are they growing to, together? Like are they kind of like a, yeah. I don't know, I'm not sure what the word is, but yeah. Are we uh, are we on market or ahead of market? Outperforming yeah. or underperforming? Or mm. um, I think that uh, it's a little bit tricky to tell, and and probably the better person to ask around that is Eric Chin at Alpha Creates. Yep. But um, my sense is that well, one thing that I do know is that 
Australian Legal Technology Association is unique globally insofar as we have restricted membership to Australian legal technology companies. So law firms who do a little bit of tech or tech companies who do a bit of law are not members of ELTA. Um, so we are the only organisation globally that restricts its membership to dedicated legal technology companies. Yep. And so it makes it hard then when you look at ILTA or ELTA or any of these others because, of course, what they do, and, and there is a place for this as well, what they do is is bring together people who are interested in legal technology. Okay. And so the memberships tend to be much broader and not, not restricted to people who are building and selling legal technology. Um, that makes it quite unique. But uh, Australian Legal Technology Association is working on a research project with um, Eric Chin around uh, trying to understand some of the, the statistics that lie around legal technology innovations themselves. Yep. So hopefully uh, in six to nine months we'll have a, a slightly different answer to that with a little bit more information around it. My gut feel is actually that we are growing ahead of the market, um, that building this ecosystem and really supporting these companies is encouraging new uh, legal technology companies to come onto the market. Um, we're seeing, you know, some, some of them have have not persisted. Some of them have moved in other directions. Uh, we all know what the, the pivot looks like um, and some of them have pivoted away from legal. Uh, but by and large, these organisations are thriving and they are doing very well and we're seeing more and more of them move offshore, um, which again supports the Australian legal technology brand um, in the global on the global stage. I think that long-term, we are a great test market here, like amazingly good. Mm. We've got a very sophisticated, relatively forward-thinking uh, market, so whether that be in-house or uh, law firms, um, it, it's a good market to be testing in, and because it's small, it really uh, allows you to build quite quickly. So all of the clients talk to each other, of course, um, and you know that you know, one lawyer is going to talk to another lawyer and, and you're only as good as your, your product and um, and the referrals that you get. So it's a great market for creating noise and that noise um, reverberating. You do need to be careful of the echo chamber, of course, and um, just surrounding yourself with, uh, um, with information that is beneficial to your own ears or um, confirmation bias. Uh, but once you have managed to get your test market right, then uh, it does allow you to move offshore with confidence. And I think that that's one of the, the great beauties of Australia is that it, uh, it prepares you for the big wide world. <laughs> Jody, you say that you restrict membership to, let's call them genuine technology companies. How do you, how do you avoid that technology by press release, you know, I'd like a dollar for every every person that's developed legal technology in Australia because there seems to be a lot, but really on the ground that doesn't seem as voluminous. Yeah, it's interesting because, well, it's caused some um, angst along the way, it would be fair to say. There have definitely been groups who uh, feel as though they should be members, but in our um, constitution we state very clearly who the members of ELTA can be. Um, and that's something that we've reviewed at the board level a number of times now uh, and, and really tried to make sure that we're um, mm. stress testing it and making sure that we're sticking to our original goals, which is to support legal technology companies. Um, we have got a law firm that releases legal technology. Obviously, we, we want a relationship with those groups. Mm. Uh, we now have a membership category, which is for... Um, gosh, I'm going to get this wrong now, but it's for law firms who right. are um, interested in building their own legal technologies, but it's a different category of membership. Okay, yeah. um, so when I talk about the 70, I'm not including that group right. um, in my um, in my numbers, but uh, 
there is a place for, for law firms who are interested in building legal technologies. But for us, the original goal was to really support those companies that are dedicated to building legal tech. Uh, and so, you know, we have to stay focused on that and, and focused on our purpose. And it's served as well today. It means that we stay focused on building events that are um, beneficial to the members, building events that are beneficial to people who want to understand the legal technologies that are available in the market. Uh, and it's it's a different thing to having an app on the side, um, which, you know, could be spun out into a different entity. And we've seen that from law firms who then go on to become members of ELTA. But uh, having a separate entity is is part of the um, part of the gig for cool. being a member. Cool. So <laughs> that's a nice um, segue into this where we found um, – that there's obviously a growing legal tech sector in Australia. Um, and that's very beneficial to obviously that market as well. So of law firms, in-house lawyers, and um, barristers. How how do you think software companies can best work with these people? Given that they're obviously a very time poor kind of person, and you said that you did this with Zakia um, originally, you're working with as many in-house counsel as you could find. How do I guess? How do you do that? Well, this is a very self-serving answer, but obviously you're involved with the Australian Legal Technology Association. So one of the things that we we do at ELTA is put together events so that people can come and get their hands on software. So we have something called Sandbox Series, which we've um, just run a couple of so far, uh, but um, extraordinarily um, popular. They sell out within a day or two. Um, and, you know, we, we now have a program of those uh, going forward. We have the ElterCon, but the idea is that um, by bringing together both the Australian legal technology companies and those who are interested in Australian legal technology, um, then both parties benefit from that. So the legal technology companies who are looking to engage with their potential market um, can get involved that way. But ELTRA is not the only one. The Centre for Legal Innovation, which you mentioned at the beginning, uh, is another. And there are, you know, truckloads of uh, law firms who are, are prepared to and interested in um, bringing technologies together uh, so that clients can get their hands on it. Um, certainly some of our sponsors at ELTRA um, themselves are putting together events uh, and and those sorts of things are really interesting law and order, um, Macquarie Bank, which I've mentioned, Global X, you know, they're all interested in uh, in making sure that their clients and their client base have um, lots of opportunities to uh, to experience legal technologies. If you're doing it yourself, um, and certainly the way that we did it at Darkia, it was just all about the network. So it goes back to that work hard, be nice piece. We really worked hard at making sure that whenever we were asking uh, the network to step up. And even now when we talk to our clients, if we're asking them to step up and give us feedback on features or um, software or ideas, then it has to be beneficial to them. So what are we giving them in return? Um, is it access to um, particular features in the future? Is it um, making sure that they're being connected with people they want to be connected with? Is it um, understanding their particular needs and connecting them with other legal technologies? So there's you know, there's a whole piece around just making sure that you're giving back to that network in a way that is beneficial to them. Fantastic. All right. Rob, did you want to do the lightning round? (laughs) I certainly do. Cool. Hey, Jody. So we finish up each podcast with a lightning round um, of questions. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever received? For me, that would be done is better than perfect, which has kept me moving forward. It does mean that, you know, you make a lot of mistakes and Mm. sometimes uh, you have to go back and 
um, keep fixing those mistakes, but uh, done is better than perfect or the permission to choose that path uh, means that we keep moving forward and we keep moving forward at a rapid rate. Um, it's to be done carefully, <laughs> yes. but it uh, doesn't necessarily need to be done perfectly. Which would kind of go against the grain of your legal training in some respects. Yeah, well, I was only a lawyer for about 10 seconds. So I'm not sure. <laughs> 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 but I totally agree. Oh, I love that. It's a great sentiment. Now, if someone knew you really well, what's the one thing that they would know about you that others may not? I don't drink coffee. But I do drink wine. <laughs> Gosh, you nearly lost me there for a second, but you've, you've gone up I'm not vice-free. <laughs> okay, so given that you are actually um, the first answer to this question, Catherine Thomas of, of Free Range Lawyers recommended that we speak to you. Can you nominate another legal industry leader that you hold in great respect that you think we should have on this podcast? Yes, I can. So um, Mitzi Gilligan was one of the other founders of Hive Legal. She was a partner at Interellison for um, a gazillion years. I don't think I can remember exactly the number. Um, she's possibly one of the smartest women I've ever worked with uh, and she has a very um, diverse background. So law firm partner, but she also holds a couple of masters in intellectual property law. She uh does not practice intellectual property law because, of course, she's one of the most celebrated energy law, energy law lawyers in the country, mm-hmm. uh, one of the founders of Hive. Um, she's involved with Zakia uh, and also a number of other legal technologies. So she has a really interesting perspective in that she has done um, in-house mm-hmm. law fir- traditional law firm, alternative law firm, legal technology. Uh, she sits on a couple of boards. So she's uh, she's got a, a fabulous array of uh experiences in the legal industry and uh, her perspective accordingly is, is very unique. Sounds perfect. Sounds absolutely perfect. If you could lead any company in the world other than Zakia, which would that be? I'm just having too much fun right now to answer that. <laughs> I can't think of any other company I would want to lead. I mean, it's uh, we've got an amazing team. We've got a client base we really like. Um, we are just, we are literally having fun. We have three mantra that we live by at, uh, at Zakia, and that is dream big, have fun, and get SHIT done. I don't know your tolerance for me swearing on your <laughs> on your uh, podcast. I don't know that we've but, got an explicit uh, rating just yet, but happy to add it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so with those three in mind, I mean, we do, we have a lot of fun. Uh, we, there's a lot of laughter and, uh, you know, we, we certainly uh, make sure that we party and uh, and do the, the work hard and be nice piece um, as well, which is keeping me very happy. So I don't look around at, at anything else and say I wish I was there. Brilliant, brilliant. Maybe the beach, but... <laughs> <laughs> I get that. All right. Um, and finally, if our listeners want to connect with you, what's the best way to get in touch? Uh, probably by email. Mm-hmm. Uh, and given that Zakia is often spelt incorrectly, I will spell my email address. Um, so it's Jody with an I-E, Jody.Baker at Zakia Tech, which is spelt X-A-K-I-A-T-E-C-H. Jody.baker at Zakiatech.com. Brilliant, brilliant. Thank you so much for being on our show, Jody. It's been tremendous. Thank you so much for having me. I had fun. 
Thank you for listening to Professionally Challenged. Visit our website at www.professionallychallenged.com and please leave us a review on iTunes. Until next time, bye for now.